Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello, welcome back to another exciting edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer with your hosts. I'm Joe Patrice, and with me, although not physically, but coming to us remotely from the Fortress of Solitude up in Westchester is Ellie Mistal. I'm a shell of myself, and I'm hopped up on DayQuil, so we'll see how this goes. Yeah, I'm pretty messed up on DayQuil right now, too. I, uh, I'm coming off of something. At least I'm on the tail end of it, but I'm still going to cough a couple of times, I think. I blame you. Well, I don't know, so that's fair, but I understand the impulse. So... I guess let's jump right into what's grinding your gears, and I'm pretty sure I know what it is. Yeah, so today, as we're recording, the Ninth Circuit just issued an opinion on the NCAA v. Ed O'Bannon um, lawsuit. This is the suit that Ed O'Bannon, the UCLA player, has uh, has class representation, suing the NCAA for appropriating his likenesses and the likenesses of all college players in various video games and other kinds of, kinds of things. The case has been bouncing around for, for a while, and the Ninth Circuit just issued a very important ruling that says that the NCAA is not exempt from antitrust scrutiny. Okay, so for years and years and years, they have been under the case of uh, NCAA versus Board of Regents. Now we can apply antitrust scrutiny to the NCAA. However, in the course of doing this, the the judge also said the Ninth Circuit also said that the NCAA um, doesn't have to pay its players like a, a, a piddling kind of five thousand dollars settlement back pay um, that was part of the previous plan. So. This is a pretty big deal um, for college sports, but the mainstream media, and here's what's grinding my gears, Joe, the mainstream media is allowed to talk even though they're not lawyers and have no idea what's going on because they're calling this a win for the NCAA when clearly they just lost their antitrust exemption. So you know what grinds my gears, Joe? What grinds my gears is that we live in a world that is untethered from reality. That's where we are, right? Untethered. Did you know that Business Insider is worth $450 million? Right. It's a little less than that. I think it's $8 million less than that. Let's not, let's not over-exaggerate. There is no – there's, nothing, but, a lot, there's but, nothing in this world anymore that has any basis in what actually happens on the ground. Uh, before we began, Ellie was very concerned that he'd be low energy because of the DayQuil. I think we've blown right <laughs> past that one. Yeah, it makes, it makes very little sense. As I read the decision this morning, which came out – even though it was 6 a.m. on the West Coast, it showed up on Pacer before the court even woke up. So a lot of us started seeing it pre, pre-dawn on the, uh, on the West Coast. And, yeah, it definitely is a resounding ruling against the NCAA on everything but this cash-sum payment thing, which is significant. I'll, I'll give the mainstream media a little bit of a credit because part of the reasoning on not giving the $5,000 is they worried that any payment that wasn't tied to educational expenses could be an issue. So there's at least that. People who don't have law degrees should not be allowed to talk about the law in public. That should be the rule. Okay, fair enough. But it is a significant thing. But you're right. The the crux I took from it was, wow, the antitrust, the antitrust ruling that Judge Wilkin made is being upheld. So... No, I hear you. And Business Insider is worth a lot of money. So I'm not even an antitrust another... lawyer, but I can read. That helps. Yeah. Sorry. All right. Let's, well, let's talk about something that let's talk about something that people who don't have a law degree are allowed to have an informed opinion upon, and that would be the Supreme Court. 
Right. So we're going to talk about Supreme Court stuff. We got the October term about to kick off here, and we thought that what we would do is get a real-life Supreme Court litigator to talk about Supreme Court cases. See that? See, it's kind of we're doing the thing that uh, that the mainstream media isn't. We're actually getting an expert to talk about something. So we're bringing in Tejinder Singh. He's a partner over at Goldstein and Russell, and he writes for SCOTUS Blog, the preeminent uh, Supreme Court coverage organ. And he's going to talk to us about what's going on. Well, Tejinder, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Tejinder, you're one of my favorite guys to cut and paste. <laughs> hey, that's a solid distinction. I'm not even going to call it dubious. <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, what is it? Picasso said, right? Bad artists copy, great artists steal. You, my friend, are great artists. <laughs> thank you, thank you. See, now now you just made the first mistake, which is complimenting Ellie. He's all all he's gonna hear out of that is the word great artist, and now he's now he's spoiled. So this term has a lot of exciting cases already lined up and uh, and obviously they just had the long conference, so more may be coming. But off the top of your head, what what are we looking at as far as the big the kind of the big three cases. Well, you know, this term, like, we've had a series of terms where there's just sort of blockbuster after blockbuster. You know, you have Obamacare, you have gay marriage. And so these major, major cases, they've really kind of changed everyone's perspective about what a blockbuster term is. The one that's coming up isn't quite yet as uh, much of a monster as the last couple. But, you know, we have the return of Fisher versus the University of Texas, the affirmative action case. Uh, We have a case called uh, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association, which is a a really important case about public unions and their ability to raise funds from non-members. And then there's a really interesting business case uh, which has potentially sweeping implications for class actions. It's called Campbell Ewald Company versus Gomez. Uh, and it's about when a defendant can make a class action go away by paying off the plaintiff. So let's look at those cases in turn. First, starting with Fisher. Can you tell me why this is here again? Kennedy just issued his gobbledygook opinion that said that affirmative action, yes, yeah, sort of, kind of, uh-huh, is okay, as long as you apply strict scrutiny, the Fifth Circuit applied strict scrutiny. Why is it here again? Yeah, I mean, that is kind of the $64,000 question in this case. So, you know, as you gentlemen know, the Supreme Court is a court that doesn't have to take cases it doesn't want to take, right? And normally when it takes a case, it does it because there's a circuit split or there's like a really pressing issue of federal law that hasn't been decided yet. You know, very rarely does a court take a case because it just doesn't like the decision below and wants to reverse it. But I think that, you know, those first few things that I mentioned, circuit split, new novel issue of federal law, those aren't present here. And so a lot of the conventional wisdom is saying that the reason the court took this case is that it's just still unsatisfied with the lower court's decision upholding the UT's affirmative action program. Now, for our listeners, this is another. Kagan has had to recuse herself from Fisher One because she had argued the case as Solicitor General. She has to recuse herself, or she doesn't have to. She is choosing to recuse herself again for Fisher Two. Um, is that part of the reason why maybe the court thinks that they have the votes to to strike affirmative action down? Well, I don't know because I don't think that you know Justice Kagan's presence or not would have ever made a difference, right? Whether the case goes off you know, five to three or or five to four, it's still a a majority. She was never in play, really, in the case. 
So I'm not sure that that would make a big difference. But I also don't think the court is going to, you know, broadly strike affirmative action down. I think, you know, Texas in this case has this policy that it, that it implements before it does its holistic affirmative action assessments, and that is called the top 10% program. And a lot of other states don't have this. So what I would expect is if a negative decision comes out of the court, you know, it's going to be a big deal for Texas. Uh, and it may have, it, it will obviously start keep the ball rolling. You know, I shouldn't say start the ball rolling because the court has been rather hostile to affirmative action generally. But, you know, I, I wouldn't say that this is going to be the case that ends it all. I just got to think that the, the opponents of affirmative action, they've got to get a better standard better, better than Abigail Fisher. I mean, she, at every point, I mean, Texas is basically, University of Texas has basically said that she wouldn't have gotten into the school. She was Martian. So at some point, they've got to, you know, go find a high-performing Asian student who got who couldn't get into Berkeley, and then and then we got a case. This is uh. yeah, yeah uh, I hear you. I mean, it's it, it is an interesting you know case that this is the vehicle. You know, there were so many other like odd issues with it, right? Obviously, she went to another school. She graduated in 2012. There's like all manner of reasons why she's not the ideal plaintiff, including her academic qualifications. But uh, here she is, round two. Let's go to Friedrichs. Let's go to the case where I, I've been calling this term. So if last term was the term where, uh, where the court did some very happy things for progressives, I feel like this term is going to be Robert's the revenge term. Um, Robert strikes back. And I think that uh, case number one for, on that is going to be Friedrichs versus California teachers. The court is going to kill unions in this case. Tell me why I'm wrong. Well, you're not wrong. Um, <laughs> you know, they, they may not go so far as to kill unions, but, you know, I do think... So one really interesting thing about Friedrichs is the procedural history of the case. Um, you know, the challengers in this case, there is an, an older Supreme Court decision called Abood, which basically says that these sorts of union arrangements whereby uh, public sector unions collect funds from non-members and use them for their union activities uh, or some portion of their union activities are constitutional. And Abood decided that question basically by analogy to private sector unions. It said, that's okay, so the public thing must be okay too. And a lot of people think that's wrong because what you're dealing with is compelled subsidies for speech on matters of political concern. And that is, you know, kind of something the First Amendment generally does not like the government to do is force you to pay for speech on political issues where you may disagree with the political message. Um, so now, in a couple of more recent Supreme Court decisions, you know, the conservative side of the court has raised its arms about this and, and has, you know, made a lot of noise. And so the, the challengers in this case, they filed a, a, a case in the district court in California and said, look, we know that we lose under a boot, so just enter an order saying we lose so we can appeal. Okay, <laughs> they did. Uh, then they went to the Ninth Circuit and they said, Ninth Circuit, we know we lose under a boot. Enter an order that says we can appeal. The Ninth Circuit said, yeah, fine. Um, and so here we are in the span of like less than two years, basically, from when they started. Um, it's been a lightning trip to the Supreme Court. And here the court has granted certiorari. Now, you know, I think that if the statements that have been made in the more recent Supreme Court cases are true, then certainly we're going to see some curtailment of public union activities. Uh, whether it will totally destroy the unions is kind of a separate question. You know, the, the problem, of course, in this case is that the question is how much money a union can force non-members to pay to the union. And, you know, unions, it's widely accepted, need to do this because otherwise, you know, no one would join. 
except a few hardcore people. The union would still be statutorily required to lobby for everybody, and the free riders would effectively destroy the union. Sounds like a good argument to me. Yeah, the free riding problem is a tremendous one. You know, now some estimates have been done, and they say that if the challengers win in this case, public sector unions might see themselves losing something like 25 to 35 percent of their uh, money, which is a lot of money. It may not be crippling, but it's a lot of money. And you know, we'll have to see how they respond. Whether it would be by you know, raising dues on existing members, whether it would be by seeking other sources of revenue. But, you know, I do expect that there is going to be some real cutback on what unions can do after this case. The other thing that I think is important for the public to understand is that public unions are all we have left. The right has won. They've killed private unions. I mean, outside of Major League Baseball, you're not going to find a private union. So when you're when you go into the to the lion's den of the public unions, that's really all. If 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 they go down on this, if, and as you say, if they lose 25, 30 percent of their funding on this, that's over. the The right wins. The right wins. If this case directly overturns Abood. Yeah, uh, I think that, you know, that it would be a major, major victory for conservative anti-union activists. Absolutely. Well, the interesting thing about this case, from my perspective, was I was looking back at kind of its its whole history. And even before the quirky procedural nature, actually probably beca- the reason for the quirky procedural nature, was that in this older Knox case, where not really talking about this, and apropos of absolutely nothing, Justice Alito decides to throw out, you know, it strikes me that maybe, maybe a boot is wrong. And it's and they just kind of seized on that. I guess my question to that is, has it always happened, or is it happening with increasing frequency that there are justices kind of dropping hints that, about what law they want to see next come up? You know, Justice Thomas is sort of famous for it in several cases in the past, saying like, you know, we've relied here on this precedent. I think this precedent is stupid. No one has asked us to overrule it. But guys, think about it. You know, right. uh, he's done that quite a few times. Uh, Justice Alito has done it very pointedly in this union context. You're very right to pick up on that. I think he has a very clear picture in his head about how he gets from where we are today to, you know, a world with no unions. And I think that's a world he'd like. You know, Justice Breyer did something kind of similar on the death penalty recently, right? He yeah. didn't identify a particular case, but he just said, hey, guys, does someone want to file a brief maybe saying the death penalty is unconstitutional? I bet <laughs> that would be neat, you know? And and so you see these kind of, like, hints dropped occasionally in dissents and concurring opinions um, where justices do have their kind of pet projects, their hobby horses, and they, they wheel them out. It's, it's happened for a while. In the union context, Justice Alito has certainly been the one lighting the fire. Joe, do you want to geek out on your geeky, boring class action? Blah. Yeah, so let me, I'll set the stage a little bit. So Ellie and I actually went out and gave a, our own Supreme Court preview to some students the other day. Go Rutgers. And we were talking about what, yeah, correct, Rutgers, Newark. And we thought, we were talking about the cases we thought were important, and I identified this one, and Ellie didn't think it was all that interesting. But I'm glad that you do, so that we... That, that I'm somewhat vindicated in this. But the Campbell-Ewald decision, I think, is ridiculously important. Because I think it could just be, as much as Friedrichs will make it hard for there to be unions, I think this would almost make it impossible to have real class actions. It would raise some challenges, potentially. So, yeah. you know, the, the issue in Campbell-Ewald is, you know, this 
this arises because Article Three of the Constitution limits the jurisdiction of federal courts to <coughs> cases or controversies, right? And part of that is that the plaintiff needs to have standing, that is, a live interest, an ongoing interest in the case. And so this case arises under a law called the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, which is basically protects you from uh, bullshit text message marketing, right, that you don't want to receive. The company in question sent a bunch of unsolicited text messages out, including to some people who had, like, opted out of receiving them. And there are statutory damages for that. I think it's something like 500 bucks for each violation, right? The reason class actions exist and the reason that they are, are good is that sometimes a defendant company does something that hurts a large number of people, but only a little bit, right? And so no single individual has any incentive to, like, hire a lawyer, file a lawsuit. But if you pull everyone's claims together and they can divide up the costs of litigating them, you know, suddenly it starts to get more interesting. So that's what you have here. You have a, an individual plaintiff brings the claim, and he's the representative for this class. The class hasn't been certified yet. And the defendant says, okay, we'll give you the 500 bucks, right? They just make that offer. Right. Right. Buy them right. off. And then, yeah, they make the offer, and they say, you can have everything you want all $500. And uh, then they say, now your claim is moot. You no longer have standing because you can get everything you want without having this lawsuit. Bada bing. And, uh, you know, the question is whether merely making the offer is enough to render the case moot. So in this case, the plaintiff didn't accept the offer. He said, no, I want to keep going ahead. So the question is, does making the offer make the case moot? Does him rejecting the offer, you know, either make the case moot or give the court the power to enter judgment for the plaintiff over his objection, giving him his $500 and sending him on, on his way? And the reason that this would complicate class actions is if every time the lawyers find a plaintiff who's willing to be the lead plaintiff, the company just gives him 500 bucks. You know, and then the lawyers have to start from scratch and find another plaintiff. Right. You know, the class action will just never get off the ground. They couldn't just keep going to another plaintiff and another plaintiff and another plaintiff? Well, yeah, but that's... They could, but it would take, it would be such a pain, you know. Now, there are ways, obviously, around this, right? One way is that the individual plaintiff could ask for more, you know, in addition to asking for 500 bucks, you know, he might try to seek some kind of injunctive relief. Right, which they couldn't moot just by giving it to them. But in this case, I don't believe the statute really authorizes that. So there are certain types of cases where you know this is kind of the ball game, um, and in other class actions like consumer class actions where you know maybe all everyone just gets a coupon or something. You know, those are the kinds of cases where you might have problems as well. Here, here's my question: o- outside the Arthur Miller fever dream here of how this ruins class actions for everybody, could this be a problem that would be better solved by regulation? And by that, I mean, like, could we just um, change the rules of class status so to avoid this problem without having to basically having to care about this case? It, it's really hard to see how, because, you know, the, the question is whether Article 3, you know, a constitutional provision, requires dismissal of the case. And if that's true, right, like, the only thing you could really do is you could certify the class much earlier, right? You could certify it as soon as the complaint is filed, for example. Right. Right. But instant class certification is like, hey, that's not happening. Right. Like, if anything, the tendency is to make class certification more difficult in today's society, because the perception is that once the class is certified, the defendant just has to settle or face crushing liability. Right. Right. So 
instant class certification ain't going to happen, right? So there's really, you know, you'd have to find a way to give someone an interest in the case that wouldn't be mooted by under Article 3. And so the problem, because it's constitutional in scope, can't really be regulated away, I don't yeah. think. Yeah. And back to the, not to introduce another case into this, but to to the point that there's a kind of a war on how long it takes to get class certification. We're also going to have this term, a the Tyson Foods case, which tries to kind of debate about what exactly it means to be a class and whether or not you can be a class if you kind of statistically all have similar issues or if you really need to one by one get everybody in the class to have the exact same issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, class actions are a huge issue, one that repeatedly goes back to the Supreme Court, and they're a major conservative hobby horse. Now, we haven't talked about what we think is going to happen in this case. I personally think, you know, it's really interesting because there was a case called Genesis Healthcare, where five justices led by Justice Thomas assumed, because the plaintiff had, like, failed to challenge the holding below, that an offer of, you know, all the relief the plaintiff was seeking would render her claim moot. And then they answered kind of a related question. And the four dissenting justices, who are the four, four more liberal justices on the court, you know, they had a really sort of, Justice Kagan wrote a really pretty awesome dissenting opinion. The logic of that dissent has been advanced, you know, by the respondent here, by the United States, which is supporting the respondent. That's a powerful amicus brief to have on your side in the Supreme Court. Um, but, you know, this is going to be a bit of a nail-biter to see, you know, what a majority of the court thinks about this. And if... If the you know company wins, if the defendant wins in this case, it is going to require some substantial revisions to the way that class actions are pleaded and assembled and what lawyers have to do. You know, there may ultimately be workarounds, but uh, it's going to be a major thing. I feel like with this again, with this pro business court, this is this is the revenge term, and anything that they they can do this term um, to to prop up businesses and hurt the working man, I, I I would feel I would feel worried about. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you say that. You know, last term everyone was talking about how liberal the Supreme Court has become, and I thought that narrative was just utterly insane. Um, you know, I think there was one decision last term that was objectively, truly, you know, extremely liberal, and that was, of course, the same-sex marriage decision. But I thought on basically everything else, what you saw was basically it wound up being not nearly as bad as it could have been, <laughs> and and everyone was really happy, right? So you had, like, the Obamacare case, and everyone was like, oh, look at these liberal Supreme Court justices. But a liberal court would never have granted cert in that case. You know, exactly. you never even right. would have had a conversation about it. So what we had last term, if you're a liberal or a progressive, was disaster avoided plus gay marriage, right? <laughs> and, what we have, and what we have this term is, like, looming disaster, um, and, and I think, you know, there's a, there is real reason in these three cases that I've mentioned to, to believe that, like, you know, the results may come out in the sort of more strongly conservative direction. You know, I don't want to overstate the impact of what these decisions could mean. The sky may not fall. You know, we may figure out ways to deal with them. But, you know, in terms of the, like, liberal conservative traditional balance, I'm expecting, you know, probably two out of three of these cases come out the conservative way. And even last term, the gay marriage case, I mean, that was a win for progressives, but the decision was hardly an intelligible progressive point. It was more Kennedy's gobbledygook again, um, that kind of, as Joe and I were saying at Rutgers, it was kind of like, well, love wins. Yay. But there there was, you know, there you would kind of. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. uh, It was very, um, very hippie. It was a very hippie love kind of thing. But when you tried to look at it and say, like, so, so wait, was this. Did he rule on equal protect? Where? That was a much harder thing to parse out. 
Senator, before I let you go, I, I wanted to get your opinion on uh, on Luis versus United States. Um, I know this wasn't in your top three, and this is kind of just a, a personal ballywick here, but I think it's an interesting problem for liberals. Uh, for if you guys haven't followed it, Luis versus United States person, uh, Silas Luis, she ran. She was caught up in the Miami uh, Medicare Medicaid and uh, Medicare fraud case. She allegedly defrauded the government out of forty five million dollars. She was indicted for defrauding the government out of forty five million dollars, and as the government is wont to do. It seized her assets that were unrelated uh, to the to the fraud, so that they could serve as substitute payments should the government rec- recover forty five million dollars. Uh, Silas Luis does not have forty five million dollars anymore, and so she's arguing under the Sixth Amendment that the government seizure of her assets destroys her right to counsel of her choice. She has no money anymore, so she can't hire an, ex- an expensive lawyer. And I think it brings up a really interesting kind of, even for a liberal, a kind of interesting question of, is the right to counsel important enough that we're going to let potential criminals use essentially the profits of their criminal enterprise to hire an expensive lawyer to get them out of being convicted for their criminal enterprise? Well, so to be clear, you know, the question presented in Luis is whether the seizure of assets that are not traceable to a criminal offense you know, violates the Fifth and Sixth Amendment. So she's not trying to use the profits of her illegal enterprise. She's trying to argue, I have money that's separate from this that you also seized, you know, that I want to use to hire the lawyer of my choice. Now, Yeah, but she has that money in part because the money that she did allegedly illegally obtain, uh, she spent it all. Like just because you spend your criminal profits quickly and keep your your clean profits, uh, is that is that a great? I don't think that's a great argument. Well, you know, we'll see. You know, as so as a lawyer who gets paid by criminal defendants from time to time, <laughs> uh, I personally think you know it's, it's obviously you know take take the answer with a grain of salt because it it is uh, you know self interested. But on the other hand, like. Anyone who has ever been on or worked on the defense side of a criminal investigation, you know, knows that when the full force of the Justice Department comes after you, like, you know, it is a hellish experience. You know, you face extremely long odds. And, you know, bear in mind, some of the people in this circumstance, right, who are charged are innocent and cannot hire lawyers. And that's oh, yeah. why you wind up with things like innocent people pleading guilty to crimes they didn't commit. It's when you wind up with, you know, the full weight of the government coercing results out of folks who don't have the resources to defend themselves. And, you know, we've seen time and again, even clients who have tremendous resources and thankfully can defend themselves and do prevail, like this stuff takes a real toll. And for people who are in much worse positions, you know, I think there really is a very strong argument that being able to hire a lawyer, you know, and being able to have uh, a full-throated defense of your case is, is critical to the rights guaranteed by the Constitution. And, and that's never been more the case than today when the disparities between prosecution and defense resources are so great. I think, I think Luis is going to win. And I think because, put like this, if this was a case of a kind of a low-level drug hopper who was impoverished and not, afford it to, not able to afford her right to counsel, I don't think the court would care. But because Luis is rich, I think that uh, the Roberts court is going to be like, hey, wait a minute. This rich person can't afford afford a lawyer. This rich person might have to get a public defender. That's not right. So I actually think that Luis has a pretty good chance here. Or, or more. I, or I more. I mean, you yeah. know, it's her petition, and they granted it. So you know, that's got to be for a reason. 
Yeah, and many of them might also think, hey, this is the sort of person that would have been my client when I was in private practice, which... <laughs> and scene. <laughs> yeah. No, that, fair enough. All right, well, I think that's, that kind of is our preview of the big cases plus uh, Ellie's hobby horse. So thank you so much for joining the show, Tejender. Good to chat with you again. Thank you. Absolutely. All right, and so... Thanks so much for coming on to Gender. Thank you, uh, Joe. And uh, that's our show. Please tune in. Don't forget to like us on iTunes. That helps us. Don't forget that uh, we are very accessible uh, through social media. Um, you can find me at, at LENYC. You can find Joe at Joe Patrice. And also read us on Above the Law. Thanks a lot. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.